Well, look at your Bibles with me to Psalm 51. This morning we will look at David's need for forgiveness. And as we look at this topic of David's need for forgiveness, it's jumping off of the page to us about sin's reality. Sin is one of the least enjoyable topics that we will engage in, at least as it relates to our own lives. Now, we may engage in conversation about how others have sinned or failed or fallen, and we'll point a self-righteous judgmental finger at them. Sometimes we will initiate conversation about our own failure or failings, and we'll do that in a lighthearted manner or excusing it or justifying it by the distress or the fatigue that we were under. And so we'll acknowledge our sin and kind of laugh it off as if it really wasn't that serious to anyone, including God. So Psalm 51 is one of the classic psalms in the collection of the entire Psalter. Now, we're in the second book of the collection of psalms, and this is one of seven penitential psalms. And it deals with the severity of sin and the need for forgiveness. Now, David's sin is very well documented. And the subject of this psalm is his personal lament as he is continuing to deal with not only the sin of his adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, but I believe of David's total sinfulness, as we'll see as we go throughout the psalm. So David is intensely aware of his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah as he was confronted by the prophet Nathan. Nathan is the one who reminded David that God didn't miss a thing, that God saw it all, and that God knows it all. He was fully aware. And it was that realization that caused David to recognize his need for forgiveness. And I think in some respects... It escalated his understanding of who God was and what it is that David needs from him. So in this instant, David is a man desperate for forgiveness. He is crying out to God, the great and glorious God, who is the only one that could provide it. And we should be reminded of this. The Mosaic law provides no comfort for, no forgiveness for murder and adultery. Each of these sins carried with it a death sentence as its penalty. We read in Exodus 23:7, keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent or the righteous for I will for I will not acquit the guilty. I will not forgive the guilty. And when God doesn't forgive, that means death is the consequence whether it be physical or spiritual. We read similarly in Leviticus chapter 20, if there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Now, I want to ask you this question. How differently would adultery and murder be in our country today if, in fact, there was a, was a death sentence for such sin. You know, in many parts of the world, there is a death sentence for adultery. There is a death sentence for murder. It is the old adage, an eye for an eye. And in our civilized country today, we say, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. 
Let's go back and look at his childhood. Let's look at his parenting. Let's look at his environment. Let's look at the situations. Let's find some way to excuse this individual from the responsibility for their sin. How much less adultery would be committed within the Christian community if there was a severe punishment for that? You know, in many churches today, amongst the leadership, if they are aware of someone who is in the act of adultery, they say, well, it's not really my problem. It's not, you know, I'm not the sin police. I can't, I won't make this public. I'm not going to confront them. We'll just kind of be quiet and hopefully it'll take care of itself, right? Is that the right response? Well, absolutely it is not. So we have this challenge with what we perceive to be serious sin and with what we perceive to be acceptable sin or excusable sin. And I'm sure you've heard the term little white lie. Not really significant, not severe. Didn't really hurt anybody. Well, we, I think, have categorized many, many sins in our lives as these that are inconsequential and are not really serious and probably don't need to be dealt with. Well, David was well aware that because he was guilty of adultery and murder, that there was no sacrifice that he could offer, there was no gift that he could give that would provide that for which he desperately sought after, and that was forgiveness from God. And so he comes before his God asking him to do what he was not obligated to do. So this week we're going to look at verses 1 through 9, and next week we'll look at verses 10 through 19, because I really don't think you would have sit through another 60-minute sermon. So, let's read together. Psalm 51, verses 1 through 9. God's Word says, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, I have sinned, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified when you speak, and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the, excuse me, and in the hidden part, you will make me know wisdom. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquities. You know, even though it sounds like David is dealing with this sin, And vague generalities, he's really getting to his sin in a lot more detail than I think you and I can can discover in just a cursory reading of this psalm. So I think it takes exploration and a little bit of digging to understand exactly all that David is saying here. So we're going to look at this section in three parts. The first one, number one, is we're going to look at David's cry. David begins his plea before the Lord with a cry for mercy. Verse 1, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. So you're going to notice in this verse that David uses three words that express the intensity of his heart and his understanding of God. He says, Be gracious according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of 
of your compassion. Now, David wasn't trying to flatter God, and David wasn't trying to manipulate God. For example, you might sit down with your boss at your annual evaluation and say, you know, boss, you've done a great job this year. This company is better than ever. You've taken it from rags to riches, and we are so fortunate to be graced by your genius. And I can't imagine how terrible this company would be apart from the great boss that you are. David's not doing that. David is acknowledging from the depth of his heart exactly who God is. And David understood that he was deserving of death for what he had done. And he had only the mercy of God to plead his case for. David couldn't boast in his kingship. He couldn't boast in the in the expansion of Israel's border, he couldn't tell God how blessed Israel was that he was their king. David only had the mercy of God to cling to. Popular pastor James Montgomery Boyce expresses it this way. He says, mercy is the sole basis of any approach to God by sinners. We cannot come to God on the basis of his justice, justice strikes us with fear and causes us to hide from him. We are not drawn to God by his wisdom. Wisdom does not embolden us, though we stand in awe of it. No more does omniscience, omnipotence, or omnipresence. The only reason we dare come to God and dare hope for a solution to our sin problem is his mercy. That's all there is. That's all we've got. When we come before the Lord, all we have is the mercy, the compassion, and the loving kindness of God. We know what mercy is. It is God not giving to us what we deserve, which is death. And here, this is what David is depending upon, and it is what he is crying out for. He is crying out, for the mercy of God. Secondly, he's crying out for God's loving kindness. This loving kindness uses the covenant term of kesed. Kesed describes the absolute commitment of God to be faithful to his people to forgive. That doesn't mean that he would not punish. It does not mean that there would not be consequences. But it means that God had made a covenant to extend loving kindness to his people because of the covenant that he made with them. As an example of this, after God had freed Israel from their slavery to the nation of Egypt, and after they had traveled across the Red Sea, and Moses went up on Mount Sinai to get a direct word from God, and as the people waited for Moses to come back, what did they do? They gathered together all of their gold, and they melted it down, and Aaron fashioned it into the form of a calf, and they worshipped the calf as an idol representing this unknown God to them. And so after Israel had committed this act of adultery, Moses, in anger, broke the original two tablets and journeys back up to Mount Sinai to hear from God again, to meet with God, and this is what we read in Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7a. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, 
slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. God repeated to Israel his covenant commitment, tested to express loving kindness to his people and to make forgiveness available to them. This covenant is what David is calling upon, even though there is no provision for forgiveness in the Mosaic law that David would now know of for murder and for idolatry. God made a covenant with Israel to forgive them, and David is calling upon and pleading God's mercy based upon this covenant commitment. The mercy of God is couched in His loving kindness that He has for His children, and it couples together with David's cry for compassion. David's great sin made him desperate for the great compassion that exists within the attributes of God. Compassion is looking at the need of someone and being moved to action to remedy that need. When you look upon someone who is hungry, you are moved to compassion to do something about that hunger or about that distress or about that illness or about something else. And so it is God's compassion that moves him to remedy that need that we had for cleansing cleansing and for forgiveness. So it is somewhat synonymous with God's love and really cannot be separated from God's mercy. And so together these three words describe David's desperate need for something that he did not deserve and for something that he could only find in the great God that loved him. These three words are countered with three other words that describe David's condition, which he is now profoundly aware of. He is profoundly aware of his true condition, and that is this. He is saturated in sin. It's not just a little bit of sin. It's not a fingertip. It's not an arm. It is the entirety of David's being that is saturated in sin. So he goes on to say in verses 1c and 2, Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. So these three words that David uses here, excuse me, the three words that David uses to describe God's nature, his mercy, his love, and his compassion, are now set against his condition as a sinner, and it's the words transgression and iniquity and sin. All synonymous words with slightly different nuances that highlight David's true condition. For example, the word transgression describes a willful rebellion that crosses a known boundary. Think about that. Transgression describes a willful rebellion that crosses a known boundary. Did David know that adultery was wrong? It didn't matter. He ran across that boundary as a rebellious sinner to satisfy the sinful desire of his heart. Did David not know that murder was wrong? He absolutely did. But he ran across that border in an attempt to cover up his sin of adultery by orchestrating the steps 
by which Uriah would most certainly be killed. He knew these were sin, and he willingly set in motion events that would radically change all of their lives forever. The word iniquity highlights the perversion of mankind. It is rooted in in man's sinful nature and in his total depravity. We'll look at this in a little bit more detail in verse 5. The word for sin is a generic word and it communicates the general understanding of falling short of God's standards. Now we're going to see these words sprinkled throughout the entirety of this psalm and they highlight David's personal failure on a very deep level. Not just in adultery, not just in murder, but on an, on an inclusive scale of all of David's life. David identifies the depth of his sinful being and as he does so, He asks that God would blot out, wash, and cleanse. These verbs are the application of God's mercy and love and compassion to cover the depth of David's sin. Not just in the two acts, but in the saturation that David is made aware of, of just how sinful he is. We'll look at these in a little bit more detail a little bit later on. So this desire for forgiveness is coming from the depth of David's heart as he recognizes the depth of his sin. The cleansing David desires can only come from an act of divine grace. There is no sacrifice that can achieve it. David is desperate for what God alone can do. He's calling on the great mercy, the great love, and the great compassion of God. And he is articulating the true depth of who he is, a sinner. A sinner in great need of forgiveness. And now we'll look at the second section of our outline today and we'll see David's confession. David says, I have sinned. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before you, before you, before me. David says, in short, I know that I am rebellious at heart and have fallen far short of your mark. Again, I don't believe that this relates primarily to adultery or murder alone. I think it underscores David's understanding of just how completely sinful he really is. It took his adultery and it took his murder to bring this truth to the surface of his life. And there is a New Testament verse that I didn't quote, and it is this. Oh, but for the grace of God, there go I. Isn't that right? We look at the lives of other people and we say, how could someone do such a thing? How could someone act such a way? How could someone ever discount the grace of God and do such a terrible thing? And so sometimes it takes the egregious sin to help us to recognize and understand just how deeply and thoroughly saturated and sin we are. I believe that this is what David means when he says his sin is ever before him. David, like us, is a continuous, habitual sinner, and he is very aware of his sinfulness. Now, we will often come to church in our best clothing, and we will speak the Christian jingled jargon language, and we won't really talk about how desperately we have needed the Lord's forgiveness or how 
wickedly we have sinned against Him. We'll talk about such platitudes as how good the kids are doing and how well I am feeling and how good the weather is. And boy, football season's right around the corner. But we will not talk about the reality that we are continuous, habitual sinners and need for forgiveness because we want to come and our polished best and present to others something that in the depth of our heart we know isn't true, and in the depth of other people's hearts, know isn't true as well. It is almost as if we play a game with one another, and we play a game with God about how good we are, and about how great life is, and what it really does is it minimizes who we are, and it diminishes the provision that God makes for us to cleanse and cover the total saturation of sin that exists in our life, in our lives. David says, I have sinned. I have sinned against you alone. Verse 4a, against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, David is not ignoring the significance of his sin against Bathsheba or against Uriah or against the nation of Israel, who would suffer as a result of David's sin. But it is most probable that David is thinking about two things. Number one, David is thinking that it is God's law that defines sin, and David broke God's law. Therefore, he sinned against God alone. Secondly, it is probable that David is thinking that it is only because God is in the picture that a wrong done to another is a wrong. The author Pirone writes, All wrong done to our neighbor is wrong done to one created in the image of God. All tempting of our neighbor to evil is taking the part of Satan against God. And so far as, excuse me, as so far in us lies, defeating God's good purpose of grace toward him. All wounding of another, whether in person or property, in body or soul, is a sin against the goodness of God. Now think about it like this. There are certain segments of our culture, there are certain segments of the world's population where God is not in the picture, and for me to do what I want to do to you is not wrong because I am the one that is determined that it isn't wrong. God is not in the picture. There is no God awareness. There is no God consciousness. My life is lived in the context of situational ethics. And if I declare this to be a good thing and a right thing and a proper thing, then I'm going to do it. And there is no God who is going to hold me accountable to that. Have you ever heard of warlords or of warmongers? That's exactly where they live. They live as if they are the God of their own lives. And so it's very likely that David is thinking that, God, you are the one that has made this wrong. It is your law. Therefore, I have sinned against you. And apart from your law, I would not be able to sin against someone else. But because we are created in your image and in your likeness, in my sin against others, I am actually sinning against who you are and against what you have said. So when David says in the latter part of verse 4, so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge, it highlights his understanding that although Bathsheba and Uriah 
were the objects of his sinful actions that God was the one David had truly sinned against. God is seen as both the accuser bringing the charge in the phrase, when you speak, and God is the judge rendering the verdict in the phrase, when you judge, because God is the one that David has sinned against, and God alone can render him guilty, and God alone can forgive him. So what if Bathsheba and Uriah said to David, well, I forgive you for your adultery, and David, I forgive you for concocting this plan to bring about my death but not actually carrying it out. Would that necessitate God forgiving David? No, because David had sinned against God. God is the one, God is the only one that can offer the forgiveness that not only David, but we so desperately need. David's recognition is, I am thoroughly sinful, and I do believe with all my heart that David understands that apart from Bathsheba and Uriah. Verse 5, David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Now what David is not saying is this. David is not saying that my conception is sinful, What David is saying is that from the very beginning of my existence, in the very conception of my life in my mother's womb, I was sinful. Before I was born, before I walked, before I talked, before I did anything, I was thoroughly sinful. This is what we call today the doctrine of original sin. This doctrine states that all have sinned in Adam, all are guilty in Adam, and all because all come from Adam, we have all inherited our guilty sinful nature from Adam. Romans 5:12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. We aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. Now, let's take a pause here. Philosophy would say, well, that's not right. That's not fair. Why should I be held guilty or responsible for something some dude did way back in the beginning of time that I've never met and I don't know anything about? Well, you know what? God's truth isn't steeped in man's philosophy God's truth is steeped in who He is and what He has declared. And God has said this, You were guilty in Adam. You were thoroughly sinful from the very moment you were conceived and the entirety of your life is lived in the saturation of sin. But wait, there's a provision for that, right? So the sinfulness of mankind isn't talked about in some churches today. Why is that? There's no desire to have any recognition of how deeply saturated in sin we really are. Because after all, man has evolved. Man is just getting better and better. And our technology proves it. And man is somehow continually evolving into a greater condition. Is that true? Is that really accurate? Are there not unspeakable atrocities that are being committed in our world today? Do they not seem to be worse than anything that we have ever known before? So the church doesn't want to talk about the reality of how saturated in sin we are. The church wants to talk about God's love. 
They want to talk about God's goodness. They want to talk about God's kindness. They want to talk about God's generosity, God's desire to bless you with the fulfillment of His destiny for your life, where you are going to experience everything that you believe makes your, your life the most worthwhile. Now, the problem is this. It ignores the elephant in the room, and that is that we are sinners to the core. But I think even more egregious than ignoring that, it diminishes the gospel into something that is designed to bring worldly blessings to our lives as opposed to providing a cure and a solution to that which saturates the entirety of our being, and that is the fact that we are sinners. Jesus didn't come to die on the cross so that we could find destiny in our lives. Jesus came and died on the cross so that we could find forgiveness and the power to overcome our sinful condition. Verse 6 provides the positive side of this same truth. In the depth of our heart, we are sinful, but David says, you desire purity. David is saying to God, you desire purity in the depth of my heart, not a heart that is saturated in its sinful condition. Verse 6, behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the wisdom, excuse me, and in the hidden part you will make me know wisdom. So David's self-awareness of his thoroughly sinful condition has caused him to acknowledge the true state of his being, and it has birthed within him the recognition that God desires truth in our innermost being. You know what the innermost being is? It is the very core of who we are. Truth here, the word truth, doesn't mean correct information. Truth here means loyalty. Loyalty is expressed in this act of purity as we become who God wants us to be and has saved us to be in submission to Him. This is expressed in Psalm 15 too. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. These three things together encompass the kind of purity that God desires to flow from our life. Integrity, righteousness, and truth or purity in our walk with God. God desires that we are loyal to Him and have an earnest, heartfelt expression of godliness in our life. It is David's recognition that apart from the work of God, we cannot produce that loyalty to Him unless God does something in us. Let me tell you this. God will never birth within us an earnest desire for loyalty to Him and purity before Him if we don't acknowledge the depth of our sinfulness. You see, if we look at ourselves as we think we are, we see ourselves as a dressed-up, polished version of what once was a very wretched person. But when we see ourselves as God sees us, we are this wretched person who is continual need of polishing because we haven't arrived yet. 
God desires that we be conformed to the image of Christ and that we express through our lives the holiness and the righteousness and the purity that the cross has made available to us through victory over the stain of sin and power over the presence of sin in our lives. David desires that the Lord would give him the wisdom he needs to be able to appropriate what God has made available to him. So because there is this huge gap between the purity that God desires and the sinful saturation of David's life, number three in our outline, David's appeal for forgiveness. He desires restoration in his relationship with God because at its heart, this is what sin does, Sin disrupts the fellowship that we have with God and it requires the need for restoration. So there are three requests that are repeated in reverse order from what we saw in verses 1 and 2. The first part of David's appeal for forgiveness, number one, is to cleanse me. He says in verse 7a, purify me with hyssop. And I shall be clean. So the word to to cleanse here or to purify is to set free from the effects of sin. This is not canceling out the consequence of sin or the result of sin. Since David had sinned against God and God alone, and since David's relationship with God was affected, he is praying that God's cleansing will restore him in his relationship with God. So what does that mean if you and I live our lives with a continual and a constant state of unconfessed sin? It means that our relationship with God is not what it's supposed to be. It needs to be restored. It means it needs to be made right because our sin has interfered with that. So that's what David is praying for, that he would be cleansed with hyssop. Hyssop was a plant used as a part of ritual cleansing, and the branches of the hyssop would be dipped in water, and they would be brushed upon or sprinkled upon the individual, and that would perform a ceremonial cleansing. But the origin of hyssop being found, being used as found in Exodus, as God prepared to set his people free after the tenth plague that was going to come about in the nation of Egypt. We read in Exodus 12:22, You shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lintel and to the two doorposts and none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning. So the people were to sacrifice a lamb. They were to take some of that blood and they were to put it into the basin. They were to dip the hyssop branch into that and put it over the doorpost as a covering for sin. And so the first example of hyssop being used in the nation of Israel was the covering of blood over that family that would spare them of the death consequence because they were God's people. David desired cleansing that was symbolically given to the nation of Israel through the hyssop branch. And so David says, purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. I will be restored back to you. Number two, it is the request to wash me. 7b, wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. So this washing refers to the removing 
of the stain from David's life. Not only in the act of adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah, but in the entirety of David's sinful condition. To be whiter than snow is to reflect a holiness that properly reflects the inner presence of God. I don't know if you've ever been out in the snow, out in a field, out in a hill, and there's a deep covering of snow, and there's nothing to break up the glare of the sun off of the snow, and it is so white, and it is so bright, that you need sunglasses, because it's uncomfortable to your eyes. And this is the idea here, is that God's forgiveness makes us whiter than snow, so that our lives reflect the truth of the presence of God that exists within us. This cleansing that comes from the hyssop and from the washing brings about joy and restoration. Look what is restoration. Look what it says in verse 8. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. So the broken bones is symbolic imagery of the weight of unconfessed sin. It is living life under the, under the hand of God's penalty, under His disapproving presence of that recognition that things are not right between me and Him. And so it is through this confession of sin, it is through the acknowledgement of how thoroughly sinful I am, that God cleanses us and we experience the joy that comes from right relationship with Him. Psalm 32, which is also a part of David's recognition of his sin with David and Bathsheba. We read these words in verses, 30, uh, verses 3 and 4. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Well, you and I go through an emotionally distressing situation. We would say, I feel like I'm about to die. We would say that was the hardest and the worst experience I've ever had in my life. I couldn't wait for the sun to dawn on a new day. This is the spiritual expression of that emotional reality that you and I sometimes face in our lives. It is the reality that cleansing and forgiveness would bring joy and gladness to our hearts. And it would change the feeling of separation that we had before our God. The third request that he makes is to blot out my sin. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Rather than God hiding his face from David in anger because of his sin, which is the consequence of David's sin, David desires that God would hide his face from his sin Instead, to blot out my iniquities means to erase them, to no longer hold them against him. This makes a huge impact if you understand anything about ancient cultures. In ancient cultures, the papyrus that those who could read and write would write on was incredibly valuable and incredibly rare. And so when something was, le- was known or learned or something needed to be changed, they would blot it out. They would turn the paper and they would begin to write some more. So it is in the blotting out that the old is erased 
and the new can be written. And it is in this sense that the cleansing and the washing and the blotting out is the result of God's mercy and loving kindness and compassion on his people to forgive the greatness and the totality of our sin. It's an easy thing to talk about sin in very general terms. It's a very uneasy thing to talk about the specificity of our sin before the Lord. I often hear people pray in groups, God, forgive me of my many sins. Amen. I hope and pray that each of us lay our hearts bare before the Lord and confess the depth of our sin, knowing one God already knows about it. Nothing is hidden from His sight. And two, that through the blood of Christ on the cross, God has made provision for every sin you have ever committed and for every sin that you ever will commit. So we come before the Lord, depending upon His mercy, of His commitment to forgive, leaning upon His great compassion, to do what we so desperately need, to do what only He can do, to forgive us and to cleanse us and to restore us in our relationship with Him. Would you join me in prayer, please? Father, I pray that the reality of sin in our lives isn't something that we just quickly dismissed because after all we're an unfinished project and we will never be perfect Father I pray that we there are no respectable sins there are no casual sins regardless of what we think regardless of what others might say But God, I pray that we would recognize that we are sinful to the very core. And even that reality doesn't diminish your love for us, your provision for us, and your desire to provide restoration in our life. Father, I pray that each of us would desire purity to flow from our inmost being as you replace our sinful nature with a greater understanding of who you are and what you've made available to us through Christ. Father, we know that in our position before you, we've been set free from the bondage of sin. And I pray that in our practice, we would experience that victory more and more each day. God, give to us honest hearts before you. Give to us a burning desire to deal with our sin, to appropriate your forgiveness, so that we would joyfully celebrate and rejoice in your commitment to us through Christ, your Son, and our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's pray together. Excuse us, sing together.